Good morning. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary, and we've been working through the book of Luke together, and we keep coming across the same groups of people. Jesus keeps interacting with the same groups of people over and over again. And and what's great about Luke 18, the chapter that we're in today, is it works almost like a yearbook of all of these different groups. It's, it's a collection of all of these different people that Jesus keeps interacting with. There's a widow right off the start, someone who would have been on the the fringes of society at the time. And then there's a judge, someone who has power and authority and they're contrasted against each other. Then you have a tax collector. Jesus keeps spending time with the tax collector. These people who were seen as traitors, as sinners, people who, who went against their own people and worked for the foreign oppressing Rome. Then you have a Pharisee one of the religious leaders at the time. And we continue to hear that they think that they are self-justified, that they are self-righteous. Then you get to the story of a rich young ruler and, and every single week it seems like Jesus is interacting with someone who is wealthy, someone who has a lot of possessions, a lot of money. And, and this person turns to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be justified? What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns to him and and essentially says, put less stock, put less value in your wealth. And this rich man leaves upset because it's in his possessions, it's in his wealth that he finds comfort and security and joy. And in response to that, the disciples wail out, what, what can we do? Who then is saved? I mean, you look at this guy with all of this money, he's, and he's a ruler with all of this power. He has all of this in his life. And if, if we're looking at him and he's not saved, well, who then is saved? It doesn't, isn't everything that he has, isn't it a blessing from God? Yes, absolutely. Everything that we have is from God. Well, since he has so much of it, doesn't it show us that God has blessed him so much? Not necessarily. Well, then how can we tell who is saved? How can we tell who is justified? And all throughout chapter 18, as we're seeing all of these familiar characters, that question is being answered. In the interaction between the widow and the judge, it ends by Jesus saying, the son of man, that he will come bringing justice to all who are faithful. Who who is justified, who is saved? Those who are faithful. In in, uh, the, the story of people bringing infants to Jesus. He he says, uh, whoever receives me like a child will enter the kingdom of God. With the tax collector and the Pharisees, he talks about how the tax collector is the one who leaves that day justified. So all throughout chapter 18, we're getting an answer to that question, who then can be saved? Who is justified? Now, before we move on any further, we should probably define terms. Justin read for us uh, Romans 3.24, which talks about justified. I've said the word justified multiple times. So we should probably define our terms before we go on any further. Uh, To be justified is the sense of being called righteous, to be in good standing with God, simply to be saved. If we're still wondering, well, what does it mean? Sometimes the antonym, the the opposite of a word can help us to understand what it means. The opposite of being justified is condemned, being called guilty. 
The idea is that we stand before the perfect God of the universe who has created all things, who has given us all things. When we see his bigness, we see how far off we are from him, from his perfect standard, how good and holy he is and how we are very much so not. And so what we look for is justification. It's this picture that J.I. Packer gives us. He, he's, he's a, a Christian author. He's, he, he paints this picture of what justification is. He says, justification is the truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence. That's a state all of us are in. But justification doesn't leave us there. It moves us from that to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. Two incredibly different pictures of where we are. One that we have earned for ourselves, and yet through God, we are called justified, called an heir, awaiting this incredible inheritance, being so tremendously blessed by him. But as people who want to be called that, as people who want to move from one state to the other, don't we ask the same question as the disciples in the passage? Who then is saved? Who then is justified? Well, as we are looking for our lives to move from the status of criminal to heir, that's a question we all ask as well. Who is justified? And all throughout this passage, as we said, this yearbook of a chapter with all of these familiar groups, it's giving us an answer to that question. And what we see in this chapter is the ones who are justified, well, they are those who seek mercy with childlike dependence. Those who seek mercy with childlike dependence are called justified, who are brought from the status of criminal to that of heir. So we'll, we'll unpack that throughout, but we'll, we'll pick up uh, just that first part of that phrase first. Who is justified? Well, it's those who seek mercy. Those who seek mercy. And this comes from uh, the passage that, that Justin read for us earlier. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he, this is Jesus, told this parable uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So Jesus tells another parable here, and he tells us who the audience, who, who is hearing this parable uh, in it as well. It's those who think that they are righteous, those who think that they are justified by what they do, that they have done enough in their lives that they are saved. They are called justified by God. And because we've heard in the past, a few chapters ago, that some of the Pharisees thought this way, Jesus uses a Pharisee, a religious leader, as an example of that. And can we just say that if anyone could justify themselves, if anyone could save themselves, wouldn't it be this man? I mean, look at all he's describing is what he's doing. He says, I fast twice a week. There was only a requirement to fast one day a year at the Day of Atonement, and this man does it twice a week. He says he, he tithes, he gives uh, from all that he gets, not just income, 
And so he doesn't just tithe off of what he earns, but he also tithes off of everything that he buys and purchases. Everything he gets, he's tithing off of. He's going way above and beyond. And, and let's not miss this. He is acknowledging where all this comes from. He is thanking God for protecting him from, uh, from all, any other aspects that he could have gone down, from uh, cheating other people, from cheating on a spouse, from uh, hurting other people for his own benefit. He is thanking God that he is not going through all that. And sh shouldn't we be doing this? Shouldn't we thank God for all that he's done to protect us? God, I thank you for removing the temptation to steal from me for giving me enough food today. God, I thank you for removing the pull to, to hurt and abuse other people for my benefit. Isn't that something we ought to be praying? And then he's thanking God for accomplishments. Shouldn't we thank God for all that we're able to do for and because of him? A few weeks ago, we, we brought as part of our service uh, the, this incredible praise that because of your generosity, we're able to give away $155,000 to multiply the church. That's because of what you gave, we can now do that. Was it, was it wrong to celebrate that together? That's not what this man is doing though. That's not the purpose of his prayer. Maybe we can pick up on it a little bit if we compare how he prays with how Jesus tells us to pray. Jesus gives us a prayer, an example of prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. But what does this, this Pharisee do in his prayer? He says, I, five times, I fast, I tithe off of what I get. His, his prayer is so focused on himself and he's revealing something about himself. He, he thinks that what he is doing with his life, all that he is accomplishing, that is clearly what is justifying himself. So, so his prayer essentially reads as this, God, I, I, I just wanna let you know, I have everything covered here. I am good. Because what does he ask for in his prayer? Uh, he doesn't. You were right in not answering the question. Very well done. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't demonstrate any sort of dependence. He, he's coming off as saying, God, you must feel really lucky having someone like me on your team. But compare that to the other prayer that we have. This is verse 13. It says, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where, where we have this Pharisee, this, this person who's doing everything right, above and beyond what's called, we instead see this tax collector, this traitor, this sinner, one of the worst people in Jewish society, this, this sellout, someone who exploited his own people for his own profit and was working for the Roman oppressors. And here he is praying. And look at the contrast here. He, he can't even come close, he's far off. He, he can't even lift his eyes, he hangs his head. He, he doesn't even take a posture of prayer, instead he beats his chest in contrition. And we see in his prayer 
what we're supposed to do. God focuses on who it is that he's praying to. Have, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then in a shocking twist, well, maybe it's not so much shocking because it feels like every single week I'm saying, and here's a shocking twist in the book of Luke. Uh, it would have been shocking to the original audience. Uh, in, in a shocking twist here, this is what Jesus in, how Jesus ends the parable. This is verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went home to his house justified, declared righteous, saved, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man went home justified. The audience would, would have said, wait, the, the tax collector? The sinner, the guy who does everything wrong, the one who hurts people, who abuses his position of authority, he is the one called justified and, and not the, the guy who's doing everything right, who, who is a religious leader, who's working in the temple, he's not the one justified? Correct. Because this man recognizes what it is that saves him. That is not something that he is producing with his life. Now, don't mishear me. Jesus cares quite a lot about holiness. We've been talking about that throughout this entire book of Luke. But holiness, trying really, really hard to be holy, does not save. Good works do not save. It's, in, it's strictly by the mercy of God. And so the one who is justified is the one who seeks God's mercy. Who is justified? It's those who seek mercy. And then in the next section here, we, we get another piece of that. Those who seek mercy with childlike dependence. Childlike dependence. Let me read for us verse 15. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them, saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Tr truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here we have people bringing infants to Jesus so that he might heal them or, or bless them in some way. And the disciples are turning those people away. Why? That, that sounds a little strange to us. I mean, parents in this room, you hear of this incredible teacher, this incredible rabbi who's healing people. Wouldn't your first thoughts go to how your children could benefit from him? How they might be cared for by Jesus? Wouldn't that be your first thought as a parent? And, and it's true that at the time, like, kids were seen as a tremendous blessing. We see it all throughout the Bible as uh, there's, there's these stories of, of women who have been trying to, to have kids for years and years and years, and when they finally become pregnant, they erupt in, in rejoicing and praising God. It, it's something I, I become much more, much more understanding of each passing day. So kids were seen as an incredible blessing at the time, and yet they were still seen as being pretty low in terms of status in the society. That a kid's, a child's value, an infant's value, was predominantly based off of their potential. Their potential to work. Their potential to bring honor to the family. 
But with mortality rates so high and with them not doing any of that yet, they're, they're not bringing in income to a very poor family. They're, they're not uh, able to help out around the house. In fact, they need constant care. Infants are absolutely dependent on other people. So it pulls people away from doing other tasks. And so they're seen as being really, really low in terms of, of status in the society. And so people are bringing them to Jesus, but the disciples are thinking, what are they actually bringing to Jesus? They're not adding any value to his ministry. So no, 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 go away until you're older and until you can add something of value here. That was the thinking at the time. And my fear is that we might still have a little bit of that thinking ourselves. We'd hear about this sometimes when, when I was a, a children's pastor, uh, of, of being disparaging about what God can and, and is able to do in the life of a child. It, it slips out subconsciously in how we speak. See, a lot of times people will refer to what happens in our kids' ministry as childcare. That, that the kids just get, you know, that someone watches over them while the adults get to come in here or, or middle schoolers and high schoolers or whoever else comes in here to, to do the really important stuff. That they, they leave from over there to come into, we would call it, big church. We'd use a comparative word like big as if it's not the same God that's being worshiped. As if it's not the same God who's shaping and forming lives that it all depends on the size of the room, the size of the people. Big churches is where you eventually get to go to when you're ready for you to be part of the important things that God might do. And yet, as a children's pastor, I got to see God do incredible things in the lives of those who are just kids. That I, I would see children come after mere weeks of attending church that have never been to church before in their life, and after mere weeks, they are clinging to Jesus in just complete dependence on him, while adults who have been in church their entire life have their devotion split over multiple things. I saw kids sing horrendously off-key, but with tremendous vigor to a song they learned that morning when adults would refuse to worship God. Hey, hear that, refuse to worship God because the decimal level was slightly too high or they didn't like the song. Refuse to worship God for that? I, I saw kids recite and memorize Bible verses when I couldn't even get adults to read their Bible. One of the greatest one of the things I'm so grateful for in my life is the examples of faith given to me by kids. That's been so helpful for me. Now, we might get defensive. Well, I mean, of course, they're, they're kids. They're gonna do whatever you tell them to do. They're, they're kids. They don't have to be bogged down by, by thinking of responsibilities or tax codes or an email inbox or philosophical questions that make us doubt the, or be skeptical of a book that was written in the first century. They don't have to wonder how bills are going to get paid. Of course, kids will do that. They have everything given to them. Every, everything's been handed to them. And that is the point of this passage. Whoever does, not in, uh, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Whoever does not realize that everything has been handed to them, everything has been given to us, will not enter the kingdom. 
Whoever does not cling to Jesus in absolute dependence on him like a child will not enter it. Whoever does not see that it's only in Jesus that that he is only our source of hope, our source of life, our source of joy will not enter it. Whoever does not realize that it's Jesus alone who justifies us will not enter it. There there is so much that we can learn from those who are just kids with their just complete running to Jesus. We ought to mimic that that rejection of all else to cling to him. That we might bristle at the thought of being dependent on anything. And yet when we see in an infant their absolute necessity of others, their absolute dependence. It ought to raise in us childlike worship with all the rigor, regardless of what key or keys we are singing it in. We ought to mimic their rejoicing when we realize we too were in a similar state. Who is it that's justified? Who is it that is saved? Who is it that that God rescues well, it's those who recognize their childlike dependence on him, that it is in him that we are given all that we have, all that we have, that it's in him that we are able to be connected to him, that it's because of him that we move from the status of a criminal on trial to that of an heir. Nothing we could do ourselves. Like an infant, we bring nothing. God accomplishes all of it. Who is justified? It is those who seek mercy with childlike dependence. Oh, what we could learn from our children. But we don't. And I think I know why, and we'll get to it in a second. Who is justified? It is those who seek mercy with childlike dependence. But I think there's a way that we can simplify that statement even further. Well, these two passages here are nuanced slightly differently, that of the tax collector and that of the infant. I think there is a piece that they share. We could say that they are both humble, or at least they're both in a humbled state. So in other words, in other words who is justified? Well, it's those who are humble. Now, there's not a lot of value that we place in humility in our society. That, that it's set up in, in kind of a way that if you don't stand out above the crowd, that if you don't uh, make yourself known, if you don't uh, let other people know why, why you need to get their attention, why you need to get uh, their, their eyes directed to you, that, that if we don't do that, well, we're, we're gonna get stepped on. We're gonna be overlooked. Someone else is gonna take what, what could have been ours. We see it in the hiring process. That, that unless if we uh, try to make ourselves look really good, if we don't uh, tweak some wording a little bit to make us seem slightly more significant. So for instance, saying uh, I, I was really vital in overseeing a, a regular and systematic uh, removal and discarding of every element within our workplace that was deemed valueless or unprofitable which is just a way of saying, I took out the trash. Uh, Then unless if we do that, we don't even get a call back in conversations that we're all clamoring over each other, not not listening, but but trying to make sure that we get our word in, that we have our say, We're, we're fighting just to be able to speak. Otherwise, the moment's passed and we weren't heard. 
We see it in conferences. I, I'm going to a couple conferences this month, and who do we bring in as the plenary speaker? Someone we've never heard of before? No, it's this person that we were also given a, bi, uh, a biography of everything that they've done, all their accomplishments, and all their accomplishments telling us why we need to listen to them, why we need to learn from them, and then why we need to go out and buy their book as well. There, there's little room in our society for humility because if you go that way, you get stepped on. But I also think it doesn't help that we, we tend to have a pretty poor picture of what humility look likes, or looks like. We, we think of someone who's really soft-spoken, who just doesn't draw any attention to themselves. Oh, I'm, I'm no one special. Don't worry about me. But true humility, biblical humility, is not about downplaying ourselves or being self-deprecating at all times. Here's our definition. Uh, Humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. Humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. Now, there's a part of that that is terrifying, that as we go through God's, uh, God's word, as he calls us to live in a certain way, we quickly see we do not live in that certain way that we fall short of his standard, that when we see how good and holy and awesome God is, we recognize just how far short we fall. But rather than us turning to God, even more so in these moments, instead of us seeing ourselves as God sees us, well, our eyes start to wander. And we look around us instead. And we try to find ways to lower the bar for ourselves. Well, I, I can't do that. So instead, we look at other people and think, can I do better than them? Because if, if I can do better than them, then, then clearly, like, I'm doing something right. I, I've earned something for myself. So instead of seeing ourselves as God sees us, we look around and we try to see how we might be better than other people, try to elevate ourselves in some way. Because we don't like feeling low. We don't like feeling humbled in this way. And so we do what we can to stand out, to show off, to, to lift ourselves up, to do whatever we can so we don't feel so low, so we don't feel this way. But that's uh, what we ought to do is, as we see ourselves as God sees us, sees us, that ought not to drive us to try to lower the bar for ourselves, when we see us as God sees us, that, that ought not to try to be opportunities to elevate ourselves as a way to cope, as a way to deflect, as a way to survive. When we see ourselves as God sees us, that, that ought not to be a way for us to, uh, to, for us to cast dispersion on ourselves or to consider ourselves as being less than valuable. Instead, when we see ourselves as God sees us, that ought to drive us to care and think about others. Uh, flip over with me to Philippians chapter two. It's a few books of the Bible over to uh, your right if you are with us in Luke. So Philippians chapter two is, is a chapter that's almost entirely on the topic of humility. Uh, it, it starts in verse three here, but I'm gonna start in verse one while you are getting over to it. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, Philippians 2.1, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Paul, the apostle writes, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's where it picks up on the on screen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's the word it says? Humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I'm going to read that again. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see this picture of humility here that, that as we see ourselves as God sees us, that ought to drive us to care and think about others. It, it, when we see how far, sh- far short we fall from God, that ought not to lead us to compare or to try to elevate ourselves. It ought to lead us to care and love for one another. And why is that? Well, we recognize that like that tax collector, like an infant, that we are utterly dependent on God for all things, that we have done nothing to earn anything that we have. There's nothing that we have done to deserve this life that we have at all. But instead, why do we get anxious? Why do we tell lies? Why do we overwork? Why do we lash out at others? Why do we get lazy at times? Why do we cut other people down? Why do we demand our rights? Well, in each of those, we're trying to maintain something that we possess, or we're trying to to get some sort of uh, aspect that we think is owed to us. We're, We're trying to build ourselves up. We're focused entirely on ourselves. But when we recognize through the way God sees us that there is nothing that we deserve, there's nothing that we have earned for ourselves, it makes our eyes move from ourselves, from trying to amass for ourselves, and instead look towards others as well. It's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that Jesus starts off the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector saying that this is for those who are self-justified, those who are self-righteous. And the outworking of that is they look at others with, with contempt. Because when our eyes are focused solely on ourselves, there is no way to, share, to show love or care for other people. On the flip side of that, when we recognize everything that we have has been given to us, that there is nothing that we can do to earn, there there's nothing that is, is from the work of our hands. Well, this causes graciousness and love to come out towards other people who we see as being in the same state as ourselves. C.S. Lewis defines humility uh, simply as this. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm nobody. I'm worthless. Don't even look at, that's not humility. Instead, it is thinking of yourself less. Let each of you look not to your own desires. But uh, your own interests, but also the interests of others. That when we see ourselves as God sees us, we recognize there's nothing we've done to earn or deserve what we have. And it is a truly humbling experience that all of us are like that tax collector standing far off with our heads hung low. But what is beautiful about it, when we see ourselves as God sees us, yes, it is terrifying, it is humbling, it brings us to a low state, but it is also incredibly honoring that though I fall short of God's perfect standard, he calls me beloved. That though there's nothing that I can do to earn anything from God, he still calls me justified. 
that though my attempts to build for myself a kingdom here on this earth and it falls apart, he still gives me his kingdom. As we see ourselves as God sees us, it is an incredibly honoring thing to see, yes, there's nothing that, I've, that I deserve, nothing that I've earned, and yet God so lavishly loves me. That when we see how big this God is, we see how small we are, and yet we also see how this big God loves us and cherishes us in such a big way. And here's what's incredible about this passage. Who is it that's justified? It's those who seek mercy with childlike dependence. It's those who realize that God has done it all for us. In short, it's those who are humble. But the truly beautiful part of it, the the part that's a, a genuine blessing is that because God alone justifies, it's not based off of me, I can't earn it, but because God alone justifies, it's instantaneous, that it's not something that, that we have to wait and see if I live good enough for long enough. That it's not something that comes and goes. It doesn't ebb and flow based off of how well I'm behaving that day. Because what does Jesus say in, in the parable? Uh, I tell you, this man went to his home that day justified. He didn't have to wait for it because God alone justifies it's instantaneous. Because God alone justifies, we can turn to him for all that we need that we recognize that we are like a child dependent in all things. So we don't pray uh, like the Pharisee did. Oh, uh, I, I, I'm doing awesome. Look at all these incredible things that we have. No, instead we, we can, like an infant, cry out every time that we have a need. And the beautiful part is that God responds to our cries. God responds to us as we lean on him for all things. Because God alone justifies, we are blessed beyond comprehension. Because what did verse 14 tell us? There's a bit of a warning at the beginning. He says that, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's a terrifying thing. But on the other hand, we have something incredibly wonderful. But the one who humbles himself, say these next three words with me, will be exalted. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we grow in humility by reminding ourselves of what has been done for us, as we grow in in understanding ourselves and seeing ourselves as God sees us, this this isn't us casting uh, ourselves down, looking down upon ourselves, thinking that we're nobody. It's It's not also saying, look at how humble I am. I don't even think about myself. It's nothing like that. We grow in humility by reminding ourselves of what has been done for us what Jesus has accomplished, that that we haven't earned anything and yet we no longer need to stand in the back banging our chests, begging for mercy because the good news that is for all people is that we don't have to beg. We don't have to stay in the back, but it's that Jesus has come to us, bringing all justification, bringing all righteousness, bringing all salvation. And that is what we celebrate, not something that we've earned for ourselves, but that God has accomplished all of this, that he has done it all. So who is it that's justified? It's those who seek mercy with childlike dependence, who recognize that he has accomplished all of this for us. And we humble ourselves, we remind ourselves, nothing we did earn this, but Jesus alone has come to bring us from that status of a condemned criminal 
to that of an heir awaiting a glorious inheritance. And that's the posture we take when we prepare for communion. As we remind ourselves of what was accomplished for us, what was it that, uh, that led to this justification? If it's not us earning, if it's not us uh, amassing for ourselves, if it's not us trying really, really hard to get God to love us, what is it that saves? Well, it's Jesus alone. So we humble ourselves because Jesus humbled himself. I read part of Philippians 2 earlier, and this is how the passage continues. How do we have this mindset of thinking about others? How do we grow in this humility? Well, this is what Paul continues to say. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How are we justified? Well, we, uh, or who is justified? It's those who are humbled. And how is that even possible? Well, we recognize what was done so that we can be saved, that Jesus, God of the universe, humbled himself to take this price that was ours to take this penalty that was ours, to move us from that status of criminal to heir, that we receive in him all of our justification. This is what uh, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He says, for our sake, he, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus gets what was not his, that he did not earn our sin, so that we can get from him something we did not earn, which is his righteousness, which is justification. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. Communion goes back to the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Before he goes to the cross, he was with his disciples showing the significance of what he was about to accomplish. And as he's at this table, he took the bread that was there and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. This death that I'm going to, this cross that I will die on is not something that's an accident. It's not something out of my control or power. It is done. This death is given so that you can have life. Well, how can we trust? in that? How do we know that this promise is being kept? How do we know that this justification is real? Well, Jesus then took the cup. He said, this is a new covenant to buy my blood. That his death is not just the means of our justification, but the promise, the sign that it is real is accomplished on the cross as well. This promise, this will never change. You don't have to wait for anything else. It has happened on that day, on Good Friday. And so what we do as a church on the first Sunday of every month, we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. We humble ourselves by taking communion. We praise God for the grace that he has given to us. And we remind ourselves that we continue to fall short of the life that he calls us to live. We had an opportunity for a confession earlier, but I want to encourage you, if there's anything else that we still need to confess, I encourage you to do so. We'll have a moment here before we take communion. We, we don't want to go unrepentant into taking communion. If there's anything that we are still holding on to in our life, now is the time to lay that upon the foot of the cross, to remind ourselves that God saves us through all that he has accomplished. Our justification comes solely because of him. I want to give us the time as well to pause and reflect on what that means, how we can come before him humbly, not 
thinking that we're worthless, but to see ourselves as God sees us, that we fall short of a standard, yes, and we confess that, but how wonderful it is that he elevates us, that he exalts those who are humble. So I'm gonna give us, uh, I'll pray in a moment. I'll give us a time to pause, reflect, to confess, to think of what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us. And then what invites you, uh, whenever you are ready, after a time of pausing, of reflecting, to join us at one of the three stations that we have, two in the front, one in the back. There you can take a cracker, which represents that bread that Jesus broke, signifying his body, which was given for us. And at the station after taking the cracker, you could take the juice. You could do it all there as an individual, as a family, as, as friends. You could take it uh, at each one of these stations. And after that, we'd ask you to go back to your seat and we'll continue worshiping through music after we have had everyone who wants an opportunity to take communion to do so. If you're unable to make it to one of the stations, that's okay. Grab someone on staff, someone who seems friendly next to you. Uh, and, and we have some to-go options that you could take at your seat. But otherwise, we'd encourage you to come to one of our three stations, take communion there, and recognize what it was that Jesus accomplished for us how he humbled himself to the point of the cross. So we live in humility as those who are justified. We seek his mercy with childlike dependence on him, the one who accomplishes everything for us. I'll pray, we can pause, we can take communion together. Let me start by praying. Father, we are so grateful for all that you do for us, which is everything. We are so grateful that you see us as, as people meant to be in relationship with you, designed to be with you, and yet we fall short of the standard you call us to. We rebel, we turn towards other things, we split our devotion across multiple things, and yet you have given us the means to be reunited with you, to be justified before you, to be freed from constant sin and turn with humility to the life, the glorious life that you have for us with you. As we take communion, let us remember what you have done for us, that you humbled yourself to the point of the cross. And so in all our lives, we turn with childlike dependence, seeking mercy from you, humbling ourselves as we recognize what you have done for us. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.